Hello, and welcome to The Gateway Presents. I'm Victoria Chu, online editor of The Gateway, the University of Alberta's official campus media source run by students for students. Every two weeks, we cover news, opinion, and arts and culture-related topics that are pertinent to students and to campus. Thanks for tuning in. We're starting off with our news segment. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Gateway Presents. My name is Nathan Fung and I'm the news editor of The Gateway, the University of Alberta student magazine. Today we have a story that has to do with faith and discrimination. So my name is Mark Guevara. I'm a sessional instructor at St. Joseph's College. I've had that position for over five years now. I've taught four courses through the years, um, but mainly Introduction to Bible, CHRTC 100, and Theology for Teachers, CHRTC 250. In addition to being an instructor at St. Joseph's College, Mark was also a pastoral associate with the Catholic Archdiocese at Edmonton. That was until February of this year when he said his employers did an internal investigation on his same-sex relationship and fired him for that reason. We sat down with Mark to talk about his experience seven months after it all happened. Okay. And you also run um, safe spaces for um, LGBTQ Christians, right? That's right. So um, almost a year ago, I formed a group called CORE. Uh, which stands for the Catholic Outreach of Edmonton, LGBTQ plus core. And uh, it was a composite group of people that I've met throughout the years that felt a need to have a support group for LGBTQ plus Catholics, um, whether they're people who are you know, former students of mine or people in the community, um, family members that... Uh, were connected to me. Um, they they wanted a group, and I and I, so we called together uh, some of the leaders of the, some people from the the community, and they said this is what we want. And and we st- our first meeting was actually in the basement of Saint Joseph's College, uh, the Newman Center, and uh, we had about twenty twenty five people that attended. We had a nice little service. Uh, we read scripture. We had discussion. We had time for for chatting afterwards. So, uh, yeah, the, we, we meet every month, the fourth Sunday of the month, um, and we've met at the university. So after St. Joe's, we kind of got kicked out, and then we met at the Interfaith Center upstairs here in the sub oh. for about four months, and then uh, in February when I was fired, we felt that uh, we needed a safe space, and so we reached out to the Pride Center, and they reached out to us, and they offered uh, the Pride Center as a meeting space. So we've been meeting there since February. Okay. Um, I'd like to return to your work with CORE, but just to kick things off, I guess. So you were fired from the church you worked at, um, and I believe this February? That's correct. Um Can you walk us through what happened maybe just before and what led up to what happened? Certainly. So the first investigation happened December the 6th. And on December the 6th, uh, an official from the Archdiocese of Edmonton uh, came to my church where I worked, St. Albert Parish. And uh, my priest was there, who is my boss. Uh, So the three of us were in this room. And she had, uh, uh, there were three main focuses for the investigation. The first was the nature of this group that I formed. Um, She'd wanted to know what that was all about and why I didn't seek permission for this group to be formed. Uh, I answered that it was just starting up. But also in the Catholic tradition, there is no... Uh, law to say that we have to get permission to meet. So, you know, a group of young Filipino Catholics could meet or some older ladies could meet. Um, There is no permission for them that needs to be sought in order for them to meet. 
the second part of the investigation focused on my personal life. So she'd asked if I was in a same-sex relationship and had a daughter. And at that point, I felt that it was completely unjust for them to ask that question uh, because uh, I felt that I was being singled out. You know, there are probably 30 or 40 pastoral workers like me who have theological education and do ministry, and they come from all walks of life. Some um, may have had an abortion or some uh, may be divorced. And so in my mind, I felt that I was being singled out for this particular quote-unquote sin, uh, and I felt that that was unjust. As well, you know, I believe that Jesus does have a criteria for, and we do have a criteria for what makes a worthy church worker, uh, such as feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and so on. And I felt that I was doing the higher criteria uh, and that this focus on, you know, my sexual uh, morality is, is uncalled for. Jesus didn't focus on that. He focused on how we treated one another. So when I was asked that question, I simply said I refuse to answer the question on those grounds. Okay. So then at the end of that meeting, I had asked for um, an audience with Archbishop Smith to discuss this matter further, both the LGBT ministry, uh, but also my own personal life. I felt that um, it would be appropriate for my uh, pastoral boss to have a one-on-one conversation with me, so I, I, I officially requested for a meeting. One month later, I came back for a second meeting, and I was told that at, that I could not meet with Archbishop Smith, <clears throat> and that it's not the practice for him to meet with pastoral workers with these difficulties uh, in general. And then also at that second meeting, I was asked again if I was in a same-sex relationship, and again, I said, I'm not going to answer the question. So one month after that, February the 6th, I was called into my priest's office, and the human resources person for the Archdiocese was also present, and there I was presented my letter of termination. And then um, after that, you know, I posted on Facebook, the story went viral, 21,000 shares, I believe, around the world, um, lots of outreach from supporters from all around the world, Catholics, non-Catholics, people from other denominations, just an outpouring of support, about eight or 900 emails I've received since February. Okay. So how long did this go for? So it went from December 2017 till February? That's right. Yeah, it was three months, and it was pretty challenging. Like this Christmas was one of the hardest Christmases I had to go through. With this, you know, the question up in the air whether or not I was going to still have this job that I loved. When did you start working that job? So um, I worked at St. Albert Parish beginning, I believe, in 2000, so uh, three and a half years I was there. So 2015-ish I started. And before that, I was at St. Matthew's Parish in North Edmonton on 132nd Avenue and 82nd Street. And I was there for four years. So in total, I worked for the Archdiocese of Edmonton for seven and a half years. Um, but of course, as you know, like in the Catholic structure, you have parishes, which are part of the archdiocese. The archdiocese is sort of this over, um, overseeing structure, but there's also these sub-entities called parishes that, you know, operate independently in a way, but also in relation to the whole. 
Okay. The reason why I sort of ask is that I'm just sort of wondering, like, why, why now? Mm-hmm. Well, the the spark I believe was the start of the LGBT group. I felt that, um, that, well, okay, I, I would take a step back and and say it's this this the LGBT group, but also um, a, a few months before, in the summer of 2017, I had had in my heart to be a little bit more open about my relationship. And so I posted a few things here and there on Facebook. Uh, beforehand, you know, I was pretty strict about what I posted, you know, because I knew that I had Catholics who would be supportive of me, but also Catholics who would be, you know, have difficulty with that. And so um, my understanding is that some of these opponents started to gather photos on my Facebook and collect a file. Uh, and then uh, when my the the core group started in September, we'd put posters everywhere, and we had a Facebook ad. And as I understand it, that that the group, or it's these opponents, uh, saw that as the final spark, and so they lodged a formal complaint at that point. So when I at the first investigation, I was put placed in front of me uh, a file with my name on it. It was about an inch thick, and I was not allowed to even open it or see the contents of it. But I was told that it was a collection of things that people have found about my life that were uh, that were proof of my same-sex relationship. So, and then that led to you being fired in February. That's right. So, officially, in the letter of termination, I was fired for being a same-sex relationship and having a daughter. Yeah. Um, how did that make you feel? It was crushing. Um, you see, ministry, I was doing ministry for seven and a half years, and I loved it. I loved everything about it. Um, so my job entailed preparing young people for sacraments, preparing them for life in the community, but also their families. Uh, I got to visit schools um, and and take part in celebrations. Um, so I encountered everyone from, you know, kindergarten all the way to senior citizens and help them re-engage with their Christian faith to become aware and active. Um, And so, you know, to be a part of that was very enriching. And for that to be taken away from me was quite crushing. And um, I I still grieve that. Um, Although, you know, for more or less, I'm at peace. I still speak with spiritual directors every month. Um, I pray regularly. I have a wonderful community of support. And so now the question is, what does God want me to do now that this door has been shut on me? And, and this wonderful passion that I had, how can, I, how can that be transformed in different ways? And where am I called to serve now? Okay. The other sort of thing, I guess, is that some people were probably surprised that you chose to not take any legal action against the Archdiocese. Yeah. Um, could you go into that a little bit? Yeah. Maybe? That was a difficult um, decision to have to make. We probably spent, my partner and I, thinking about this for maybe eight solid hours. So uh, it was recommended after I got the letter of termination that I seek uh, legal advice. So I saw two lawyers in the city, and uh, one was very, very enthusiastic to take the the case on, uh, as it is high profile and um, both of them had talked about how this is sort of uncharted territory and it would require a tremendous amount of effort um, because it, qu- it questions a lot of fundamental beliefs we have as Canadians and freedom of religion and the individual rights and so on. Um, 
as well as other theological issues. So they would have to bring in theological experts and see, you know, what, what their take was on that. After about eight hours of contemplating, we thought that it was taking away from the primary focus of what I wanted to accomplish, which is, you know, very simple. I want for people to um, have an experience of God, which is my job. It's, you know, for seven and a half years, I, it was my job to connect people with the transcendent, with their, spirit, their Catholic faith. And so for me to, to focus on this legal action took away from what the heart of I, what I wanted to do and what I heard the people wanting, which is to have this connection. So I said, okay, you know, let's, let's not do this uh, and, and let's see what happens. And then it came to me after that, yeah, you know, in a way it sort of, for other people, it signaled that I'm the guy that was willing to lay the arms down uh, to, f- to focus on a greater goal. Uh, and I still believe that. I believe that, you know, hopefully, you know, the archbishop uh, and other church officials come to see that I'm not someone that wants to fight this from this perspective, that mm-hmm. at the end of the day that I'm, you know, a faithful Catholic that seeks my baptismal call to reach out to all people, to bring people closer to God, and that legal action would take away from that. Yeah. So it's been, I believe, almost half a year at this point. That's right, about six months. Yeah. yeah. And you said you've made peace with um, what's happened. Um, But what are some other things that may have changed in months since? Well, one of the, you know, two big questions that come up for me is what's next? And, um, you know, some people were quite surprised that I'm staying within the Catholic tradition, which I still feel called to do. Um, And so... You know, I've been teaching here at St. Joe's at the university for five years, and I feel like I I have a call to academia. So I am applying for um, for a PhD in in Catholic colleges in the United States, as well as uh, in Berkeley. There's a, a conglomerate of theological schools. So I'm hoping to apply. We'll see what happens. Um, so that's the first you know call. The second call is sort of, am I still uh, like Throughout the months, I've been reached out to by people from more inclusive Christian communities like Anglicans and United Church and even old Catholics, as well as the women priest movement in the Catholic Church. And they've reached out to me and say, well, you know, you have a place here and there are people here that you could potentially serve. Um, and so that's also in my heart and in my mind in terms of what I'm called to do next. But for now, the thing that keeps bubbling to the surface is, you know, work within the work within the academy, add to the knowledge of queer theology and the Catholic tradition. It's still fairly new. Um, as I understand, there's only a handful of queer Catholic theologians in the world. Uh, and this whole topic in itself is also fairly new. So uh, I want to be able to provide some insight as a pastoral worker, but as someone also in the academy to contribute to that knowledge. I think that's it for my question. Is there anything else you want to add? Um, no, this has been, it's been an opera. It's just, this has been a blessing to be able to just sit down and chat and, and share my story six months after the fact. And, um, you know, to be able to, uh, to share that, you know, as a member of the University of Alberta, as part of, you know, this community, I'm, I'm alumni here as well, um, that, uh, you know, as part of this community, that there is a story here that, 
um, that maybe we all can pay attention to as members of this of this institution to say, oh, wait, you know, the world isn't yet perfect, as we all know, and that this is one another issue that's that's also has to be brought to light and to be dealt with and justice to be done. Okay. Well, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was the Gateway Presents' news segment. Next up, we have our opinion segment. Hi, I'm Andrew McQuinney, and I'm the opinion editor here at the Gateway. In this segment, a few U of A students will discuss an age-old question. Should we ban controversial speakers on campus? Along the way, we'll talk about what makes a speaker controversial, the pros and cons of controversy, and the exchange of ideas in academic discourse. Hi, my name is Atar Vora. I am a third-year computing science student, and I like to proclaim myself as an amateur game developer. Hi, I'm Dane Bellavo, and I'm a second-year psychology student. Hi, my name is Pia Ko. I'm a fourth-year criminology student and a member of the University of Alberta Debate Society. So I think the first thing we should discuss is what we mean by controversial. What do you guys each define as controversial. I often am a man of um, definitions coming from the dictionary. <laughs> so whenever I Google uh, controversy in general, controversy is nothing but a disagreement that's been prolonged or elongated and taken to a public discourse. And I think that definition is quite generic and it, it works in most situations. So depending on context, you can really elaborate more upon what controversy and controversial speakers mean to the people and persons in question. So I kind of thought about this a lot. And something that I think is central to controversy is axioms. So axioms are things that are baseline truths that everyone kind of agrees on. Like, for example, life is precious. And I think that controversy arises when people try to prove axioms in ways that are fundamentally different. Or controversy can happen when people don't have the same axioms. So that's kind of how I will be approaching today's conversation. Yeah, Addy, I'm, I'm definitely glad you brought up that dictionary definition because that was kind of how I was approaching it. I'd like to further reiterate as you kind of touched on that controversy doesn't really seem to be something we can very easily define. Who is controversial is dependent on person uh, viewing it, the particular context, the particular time, etc. So based on that discussion of what controversial means, I think that's a really great segue into our next question. Are there good kinds and bad kinds of controversial? I don't think that controversy is bad at all. I think there's even a place for controversy. It can be good. In free societies, we're going to approach our problems through dialectic and reasonable discussion. So we have freedom of speech to protect us, you know, being able to bring whatever idea or critique we think might be relevant to the table. So sometimes those critiques or ideas are are uncomfortable. Sometimes they're opposite. But I think it's important to have those because I think they're an important part of the academic dialectic, if you will, and pushing forward. Yeah, I actually agree with Dane that controversy is important, but I think that a lot of what we frame as controversy is not actual controversy. I think it's more so arguments that disrespect personhood of particular groups of people. I think that sometimes happens a lot, at least in our modern discourse and status quo. I think that controversy in and of itself has to have axioms that people agree on to have meaningful debate, that the controversy actually has respect towards everyone involved. And I don't think that that happens very often when we invite particular controversial speakers to campuses, for example. A lot of what we call controversy might not even be controversy. I think what Pia said is like is pretty awesome for a positive for controversy. When you take it to a subject, 
objective level. But I think that uh, when looking at the word from an objective viewpoint, it becomes more as to what Dane says, that we can take it to an academic discourse and we can talk about controversy as it's like walking in to defend your thesis. And some people will disagree with you and you have to defend why you think what you think is right. And that is academic discourse. And I think controversies are also a form of academic discourse to some extent. Well, they need not be academic in all situations, but uh, objectively, I think it's, it can be limited to academic discourses. If we are to say there is a goal to maybe barring controversial speakers from speaking at campus, what should be the goal of that kind of action? What purpose should it serve? Is it to be serving the greater good? I would posit this in kind of a dichotomy of necessary harm or necessary good that comes out of a result of a conversation. I think it's pretty easy to weigh. Like, for example, if your academic discourse necessarily makes a lot of students uncomfortable on your campus, so not just like regular uncomfortable, I think a lot of academic discourse can be regularly uncomfortable, but if that sort of controversy sparks a lot of like hatred or a lot of problematic themes on campus, then that's a completely different thing. I think that the point of barring specific controversial speakers on campus would be to mitigate a lot of like necessary harm that would come from that conversation. And if the harms outweigh the good, objectively, I think that it makes sense to not allow that person to speak on campus. I, first of all, don't know if it's so easy to weigh how harmful it is. I mean, I guess discomfort is, uh, again, kind of a subjective thing. And I guess furthermore on that, you're right, there are just uncomfortable topics to discuss. And I think a big part of the university's goal should be to prepare students to deal with these uncomfortable discussions because they exist past the campus, even if they or, or if they're originally exposed within the campus. But I, I think there's also another level of harm in barring controversial speakers. It seems to, in my opinion, create this bubble that doesn't really, or maybe not that it doesn't really exist, but that's not something that needs to be engaged with. And it's, it's certainly uncomfortable. I completely agree with you, but I think we need to teach people to maybe not necessarily, you know, take the suck it up buttercup attitude, but, you know, address their discomforts and deal with those uh, issues of discourse. Yeah, I think I agree with both points, actually. But I think what we should be looking at as a university and as a body of students is to understand that we're in a university setting, which is a place of learning. What better learning can come from challenging dispositions and beliefs that you have held your entire life? At least that is what popular academics have been saying about learning the entire time. Scrutinizing the purpose of the talk could be a great way to identify whether it's taking it too far. And really, the battle, I think, here is to find that fine line, is to find the objective point where you can say that now you're going too far with what you're saying. When your students have gone through some really bad mental situation and what you're saying is triggering them to a large extent, that's when you know that's a good point to objectively measure where you're going too far and you can ban a certain speaker from coming on campus. You know, if a guy's coming, controversial speaker is coming over to campus to promote a book, let him promote his book as long as what he's going to talk about is his book and not his personal agenda, you know, spreading his propaganda through himself. I think... Dan is absolutely correct that we should be preparing students to face a lot of difficult topics in real life, but I think that a lot of insults can be shrouded in quote-unquote academic discourse. A lot of discourse students can't step out of as like queer people, as POC people, as people who are general minorities. They can't actually ever step out of those conversations because it's part of their personhood. I think that's something really important to note. So what might seem like academic discourse for you and me might be discursive about someone's identity might be discursive about who they are. And I think that's the fine line that we have to draw
withdrawn status quo because yes, we should be preparing students for the real world, but they are already experiencing the real world in a, in a lot of cases, and that sort of discomfort is where I think the necessary harm and necessary good is easy to determine. Yeah, just to respond to that, I, I agree that academic discourse, whatever you want to call it, it can get to a point where it's maybe not psychological harm, but it, it, it's certainly having an effect past regular discomfort on someone. To take a step back, it, it seems to be more uncomfortable because uh, we tend to view what we believe or I guess these constituent aspects, you know, characteristics as who we are. It's identity. It's more than just um, some disconnected academic idea that we might happen to encounter. So yeah, having uh, someone challenge or, you know, bring a controversial opinion to the table is more than just challenging the academic information you happen to have. It's a direct attack on your identity. And it, it's it's a really tricky subject. I, I, I don't think it's as easy as still saying where the harm outweighs the potential benefit of it. But I mean, I think that's an important part of personal growth. And I'm not saying that people in delicate scenarios, if you will, need to, you know, face it full frontal. But I mean, and that's, I guess, partially contingent on how this speech is projected, if you will. There's a difference between, you know, discussing this in a lecture hall and, you know, kind of yelling it down someone's face. And that's why we have laws against harassment and, and hate speech and the not. Uh, yeah, I I think that what we should really understand is that if a speaker comes to campus and if he's visibly and audibly shunning a certain group or identity of people, then that is obviously just ethically and morally incorrect because you're instantaneously shutting down this entire group of people. But if the same person is saying the exact same thing or the core point in a way where you can understand the viewpoint and not the bias then you can come to objectively understand that, okay, that this person is making a clear point that has logical sense. And maybe I should consider this viewpoint before letting my identity come in the way and shunning it away. I kind of want to throw a bit of an example to kind of see what you guys think if we had concrete kinds of speakers and individuals advocating certain viewpoints. For example, if we had somebody along the lines of a quote-unquote men's right activist, somebody who is coming to speak on campus for a claim of men's rights versus maybe a Marxist philosopher or somebody who is critiquing a widely accepted core thought in part of our society, which would be considered controversial. And I think the ideas of also men's rights activism in the waves of Me Too and recent events is also incredibly controversial as well. So what's the kind of difference in controversy and maybe who is more valid or less valid in your guys' view? Okay, first of all, let me just um, put this out there. Like, the university is, to some extent, like, it's a business, right? And it has no actual reason to uh, endorse a certain agenda. It's It doesn't need to be biased at all. And it doesn't need to allow platforms for people to speak. On the other end of the spectrum, though, if you try and consider people like a men's rights activist, then I would say that... If you've analyzed this person's background, if you've analyzed what he's been talking about, and not just if you, but like if everyone who's attending this talk, it feels like there is some point of value to come out of it, then I think there should be an opportunity for them to see what the person's about and, and what kind of point they're trying to bring across and then come to conclusion and understand their own opinions and their own viewpoints upon it. Basically, let them speak and then you figure out where you stand upon it. Yeah, I, to continue on, on Addy's point... I'll, I'll take a step back. I'm not entirely sure of the situation around, I guess, men's right activists. I'll just take it as a general controversial stance. But as I kind of touched on before, I think we need to make a distinction between what is said and how something's being said. There's a difference, and Addy said this kind of with uh, bias versus the actual viewpoint. 
you know, we need to always facilitate discussion, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's controversial quote or whatever. But, you know, as long as that doesn't get to a point of harassment, hate speech, you know, whatever, you know, I say, let them in, let them talk. It's, it's important for us to further that discourse. I would actually fundamentally disagree with that the university doesn't have particular things that it needs to put across. For example, in academia, we all agree that the earth isn't flat. Like we have uh, women and gender studies because we as a university have kind of accepted that's something that is important, that's something that is valid. And in that way, I think that necessarily differentiates a Marxist philosopher from men's rights activism insofar as it would be more on the academic side, like a critique of capitalism, a positing of like a theory that is like dialectically different from that. But men's rights activism, I think, opens like a dangerous precedent a little bit opposite to what the university and kind of like what we as students have generally accepted to be an axiom. Actually, going back to the question at the beginning, I think both things are actually valid. They're valid because they have logic that brings them to a conclusion. But the validity of the subject isn't what's at stake here. It's more so, again, the necessary harm and good. And men's rights activism also necessarily says that there is no need for women's rights activism or feminism. So I think that that necessarily that dialectical positing is kind of against our student body, at least in status quo. I kind of like to disagree a bit with that structure you laid out there. First off, I think it's easy to say what we've put to bed, so to speak. I think you could spin it with almost any argument and say, well, we should have figured out that Marxism didn't work because we had a bunch of case studies in the 20th century, yet we still have people who advocate for it. And we still have people who advocate for, I guess, the oppression of of women, if you will. It's certainly not a popular opinion, or I hope it wouldn't be a popular opinion. I, I feel it's it's too difficult to um, say what we do know, and that's not positing that, you know, the general values we have now are incorrect. But I mean, at least some of them might be as far as I see. If you go back, you know, 100 years at a given point, there's going to be an opinion that, you know, if you went against it, you would be considered controversial. Like, I mean, we thought homosexual people were I don't know exactly what it was, but it was some kind of sin or, or was considered wrong. But, you know, now all these years later, or maybe not so many, depends how you look at it, we've come to realize, okay, that clearly wasn't a very good viewpoint. So I think you just always need to remain open to that discussion. I primarily think that both those viewpoints are pretty strong in the sense of opening up a channel of discussion and trying to create some kind of positive result from it, whether it is emotional or purely objective. But I think that there's also a plus point in allowing uh, a men's right activist to speak, for example. Obviously, priority should definitely, I think, be the mental health and safe spaces of the student. But, for example, if had a men's rights speaker come on campus and talk, maybe that would give like some people, WGS, for example, a crazy good idea for a thesis paper mm-hmm. that they could write upon, right? Like, there could be a lot of, I think ideas and something promoting feminism, something promoting the entire movement coming from a men's right activist. So I think that idea generation uh, and topics of discourse can be open as long as they're not crossing a certain line. And that line is hard to distinct. I, I guess this is just kind of a little point on specific men's rights activism. Again, I don't have a super strong grasp of the, I guess, gender debate climate, if you will. But it it doesn't seem to me so unreasonable that you could put forth a position that we, you know, in Western society, at least have reached a point where women aren't 
I guess, marginalized to the extent that they were, that we've actually gotten to that. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just, controversial maybe, but I think that's a very important and very interesting discussion that would need to be had. And I think, again, the limitation on having that discussion, I think it would be playing too much into feelings, I suppose. You know, not that that's not something important to consider, but it would focus too much on making sure that no one gets offended. Because I I think the unfortunate reality is that if you're going to have a debate, even if it's reasonable, people are going to get offended. And I mean, I think that's just inevitable. I think that a lot of students and a lot of people go to these sorts of talks because they already have an axiom that's pretty similar to what they're thinking originally. I think people rarely go to these things to get like, you know, that change my mind meme. I don't think that that actually happens very often. I think that a women and gender studies student might actually get better justification for the things that they believe through seeing things that are controversial. But I think that there's a marked difference um, insofar as like, I think that emotions and your feelings are just as rational as objective truth. Because like, for example, I've heard the justification that saying the N-word is fine because it's just a word. And if people are to get offended by it, it's their own problem. And I think that there's something fundamentally difficult about debating anything around that, if, if that makes sense. I think that, yeah, it's definitely difficult to fundamentally debate about such a topic, but do you think that a debate shouldn't exist? I think it's important to go to the beginning of what we were talking about earlier. I think that there are things that we need to put to bed. Like, for example, we need to put to bed that the earth is flat. We need to put to bed the fact that women should be uh, respected as people. We need to put to bed the idea that indigenous people have not been harmed by colonialism in the past. I think that that's absolutely something that we as academics should do in order to spur more meaningful debate about things that I think are more academic in nature as opposed to, you know, ad hominem in nature. I would like to close with this. Controversy in and of itself is not a good thing. And I think that we all agree that controversial speakers, controversial topics can be functional. The purpose of controversial speakers should be to spur meaningful debate. I think that meaningful debate can only occur when we fulfill particular axioms, when we agree that we cannot entertain certain kinds of viewpoints because they are ethically wrong. I think that the controversy that at least I am very critical of, and I'm not saying that you guys aren't critical of, is the kind of controversy that hurts people. Trans people cannot step away from the trans bathroom debate. It is literally integral to their identity. I don't think that kind of controversy has any place on a university campus because it's simply not functional for the academia, for the learning environment of particular marginalized people. My closing statement is that controversial speakers should be heavily scrutinized by the university before lending out an invitation or lending out uh, a platform for them. Mm-hmm. I think they should be judged based on merit. I think they should be judged based on what they what value they bring to the discussion. And I think they should be judged definitely on their biases and the amount of impact they can have on a student's mental health. And yeah, once the university has analyzed these perspectives thoroughly, should they make a decision whether or not to allow the controversial speaker on campus? Yeah, those are a lot of good points. I don't have much more to close with, but just a a few minor ends to tie up, kind of as Addy was suggesting. I don't see why the university can't just say or, or, or clarify that, you know, we don't necessarily have the viewpoints of a particular speaker. We're giving them a platform for reasonable debate because they've come here and based off of what we know about them, they can have reasonable discussion. And to address what Theo was saying, as far as I'm aware, controversy is controversy. And if controversy happens to have an emotional connection, I I think that might even mean that it's more, maybe not urgent, but 
potentially more important if we can make that judgment. An issue that certainly needs to be dealt with. And I think it just means that in pursuing debate, we have to remember to be reasonable that we can never escalate. But I mean, that goes without saying because that in itself leaves the realm of uh, reasonable dialect. Well, thanks for meaningful debate because I think this is that manifest, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you all so much for coming on to The Gateway Presents. It was a really great discussion. It was great to have you all here. Thank you so much. That was The Gateway Presents' opinion segment. Next up, sit back and enjoy our arts and culture section. trying to get my Billy Jean moment. I've been trying to get my bulls in 98 moment. I've been trying to get my shook up the world. The process never rests. The moment also oh potent. Keep it on the sight. The puzzle's falling right into place. Keep it tight like the shoelace on the ends of my Tim's. Oh, I seen where I've been, but, but, hey. <laughs> I've been trying to dance like MJ nowadays. I've been trying to jump like MJ nowadays. I've been trying to move like M8 nowadays. Six rings, 19 Grammys, and a championship belt to boot. Cupid's arrow in the shoot. Leaving cocoa butter cases on every last one of my wishes. On every last one of my wishes. On every single last one of my wishes. And welcome to the house, warming. Taking shoes off and let's kick it. Sukasa, Mikasa, get your belly full. Now we improper and laughing with the homies. To the stitches, to the cleanest, to the witness, slap a vinyl on a record player. Kanye West drop out. We weren't supposed to make it past 25. What a time to be alive. Sharing the vibe, simple as plain as we ride in the tide, tied in the ties. Woo! Hey, and the floor be like Sriracha. Anything you need, no, I got ya. Sunny rays, fade away, join the wave. I'm the flower boy, let me bloom through the concrete. Yeah, be my big ass head through the people. Breaking glass, ceilings to my people. Coming soon. When I die, put me in the pharaoh's tomb from Tin Man to the Tanium. Damn, nigga, be shy now. Side of the board, kings and queens. Now we even a score. Always evident, the dreams mean so much more. So fucking excited, I'm seeing my people soar. My niggas reaching their goals. My auntie just bought a home. She was smiling when she was broke. She's smiling, but now she good. So I'ma throw the window wide open. Use love as the potion. It's miracle cold butter lotion. Never stopping this motion. So here's the future's hoping. Keeping my flame strong with the torches I be holding. Call me when I say this. We all about to be glowing. Even better than I was the last time. Think I struck upon a damn gold mine. Swear to God, on God, break all the odds. Have a good time. Hope 
hope we share some good vibes hope you come back just know you're welcome anytime welcome be my strive to greatness what too much love for the people who help me make this always gonna be a seat at the table so take this a golden ticket wishing you nothing but simply greatness the moment between us i swear to god never fake this if you ever gotta sleep over no i got blankets You were just listening to a sample from Welcome by Just Mo off of his new album Smile. Now, Just Mo is a multidisciplinary artist from Edmonton, Alberta, who is actually moving to Montreal as I speak tomorrow. So, Mo, welcome to our studio. How are you feeling? I'm, I'm feeling good. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, Mo, as a, you know, a multidisciplinary artist working both in music, you're doing your hip-hop thing, as well as acting and improvisation, um, how do you balance all of these different artistic practices, and um, how do you prioritize one or the other at different times? How do they intersect for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think all of them like play a role in each other. Like I think... When I'm doing acting, there's always things that I can use from that into like my music. So when it comes to prioritizing, it's uh, I take it one sort of thing at a time. So uh, I know that they'll all apply to each other and help each other like grow and build. So I I use that to help me prioritize them. Fantastic. Now, um, just to introduce yourself a bit to our general audience more, um, you know, how did you first get into music? Um, how did you first get into your other art forms? And where did your new album smile come from? <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I'll start with uh, how I got into music. Um, I've, I, when I was younger, I never really listened to too much music. But uh, around a junior high time, I was really starting to get into like uh, Drake and uh, Tupac <laughs> and things like that, and it really big into freestyling. That was like a that's I think how I got into rapping, freestyling. And there was like this girl that I wanted to impress in eighth grade, and I was like, I wrote her like this little rap. She thought it was whack, <laughs> and she didn't like it at all. But I was like, that was fun. I gotta keep writing. Maybe maybe I'll impress someone one day. <laughs> but uh, that's how I got into rapping, and it's sort of like it definitely evolved from that. I'm definitely not trying to impress girls anymore. I'm just trying to like. <laughs> make uh reflections of myself or i guess expressions and uh how i got into acting it was just like i was allergic to dust so i couldn't do construction so i took drama in grade nine <laughs> and I, I fell in love with improv I, I always loved just doing random things and that's what, how i started and then um in grade 11 uh i was invited to do or actually grade 12 i was invited to do the main stage production at my high school frozen crans and gillinson are dead and i was cast as rosencrantz and it was like a I was, like, thrown into the water with a role like that. And, uh, like, I fell in love with it. And I've just been doing it ever since. And how did Smile become a thing? Uh, I've just always wanted to make a mixtape. Like, when I started rapping in grade 8, I was like, man, I got to I gotta make a mixtape like Drake. I got to do, like, So Far Gone or something like that. I got I to gotta be the little Lil Wayne, do the, like, Drought 1, 2, and 3 or something. But, like, over the years, it evolved, it evolved. My rapping, my, my skills evolved, and the people I knew evolved, my connections. And um, last summer, I, I linked up with some old friends who were doing music for a long time, and we, we got to work, and Smile became Smile. Fantastic. Now I'll come back and ask you more about Smile in a moment, but first I have to ask, as a Drake fan, do you believe that Pusha T has murdered Drake? Uh... <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I I don't look at Drake the same way anymore. I still I still love Drake. I still love like a lot of his old music. I really love Take Care in particular. But um, 
yeah, when Scorpion came out, I would just I wasn't able to listen to it the same way I would have enjoyed another Drake project because I was like, he's talking like he's on top of the game. He's talking like he's really like on this, but like Pusha T just killed him and he doesn't address any of that. And twenty two tracks of bloat. Like uh, <laughs> I'm really just roasting Drake right now, but I love him. I love him. Uh, but yeah, I like I Pusha T murdered <laughs> murdered Drake in maybe the public realm. I think yeah. Okay, well, um, if you ever you know um, become famous enough that you meet Drake, <laughs> that you want to collaborate with him, oh, we'll make sure to play this recording. Of course, <laughs> you can cut it up too. For sure, Drake For is sure. dead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're on record saying that. I've got it. Sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Now let's talk a bit about Smile and also about kind of the the, the time in your life that Smile came out of, right? Um, so Smile, I was really impressed the first several times that I listened to it because <laughs> I do, in fact, stan you um, <laughs> by your your you know your varied artistry. How we have some songs that are high energy, like of course energy. Um, we have songs that you know are a bit more somber and talking about you know what you want in your future, like Montreal. Um, you know, some social commentary and songs like Black Boys, um, and of course, welcome, welcoming us, welcoming us into your world. All right, so um, can let's talk about like w- where all of those different sorts of songs come from, and like what you were trying to express as an artist, as a young man, um, as an Edmontonian, <laughs> um, in in that album. Yeah, for sure. Um, what. What was I trying to express? Um, just myself. I feel like uh, I came into the album with uh, a lot of structure. I, I really love coming into things with structure, so I knew I wanted to have, like... I come from, like, a, a theater background, so, like, uh, when it comes to telling stories, I just want to make sure that, like, I'm hitting a lot of varied points. It's, like, dynamic, so I always try to, like, hit a bunch of different things on the album. Um, where does it come from? Where does, it, like, uh, I th- it's just me. I just like I I guess I it, I use the music as just like a moment to like sort of just be honest with myself or sometimes like be a version of myself that I really want to be like on energy like Aquarius songs like that like I'm very braggadocious it's like yeah I'm sometimes I feel like that just like I guess smile was just sort of like a, a me trying to like show myself to the world and like all my different facets and like Montreal I'm I'm really proud of that song and it was almost not on the tape actually the album because I was like. Is, is this a little too personal? Am I being a little too honest with this? But I, I'm really happy that I put it on because, yeah, I think I think the album's creation just came from, like, me wanting to express me, myself. Fantastic. Now, I'll jump off of Montreal. Um, so you are moving to Montreal tomorrow, as I mentioned, to start your um, program at NTS. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank now, you. Um, that's the National Theatre School of Canada, for anyone who's wondering, listening out in the aether. Um, now, as an actor, right, you know, I'm aware that you got into a BFA acting program in this city, and then you decided to turn it down, and then you decided to go for NTS, and that's where we're headed now. So, um, um, without getting you know too personal, if you're not interested in doing that, what was kind of your decision-making process behind um, rejecting that first offer and then taking the time to work on your other projects and then going to NTS? Mm, um, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to to put myself in a program like that, and I knew I still wanted to, to do music and also comedy. Comedy has also been a large thing for me, as we were talking before. Improv has always been a big part of my life. So uh, the year that that offer was turned down for me, I I did comedy and music. 
over the summer and I, I was doing stand-up for a while until I stopped doing that because uh, it's rough <laughs> but uh yeah I just I knew that I wanted to do a bunch of other things and like grow with myself really quick before I would put myself in a program like that and that same year I'd also auditioned for NTS and I was just like can I do bigger than this can I can I do better and I, I think I sort of did that for myself I think I I showed myself that I can sort of do a lot more things and sort of do a step up not that the bfa here is bad it's an incredible program and i love all the people uh here in edmonton as well so yeah i just i knew for myself i wanted something different i i auditioned for juilliard at the beginning of the year uh, at the beginning of 2018 and i took a, a large l there but like <laughs> i like I, they put a piece of paper up and my name was on it like right away and i was like okay <laughs> but i i knew that i wanted to like continue acting so it was really little spark in my a spark in my heart, something like that, and yeah. Fantastic. All right, well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and that's a perfect segue into a next and perhaps a little um, tiresome question is the future, right? So you're going Absolutely. into this program that's three years of your life where you're doing intensive acting training mm-hmm. um, in Montreal. So how do you plan, if at all, to um, keep going on with your other artistic interests, with the other general interests? Um, and where do you see your career, um, you know, having, you know, your hands in all of these different um Honey pots, weird <laughs> metaphor, but that's the one I'm using. Um, going into the future of your career, yeah. Um, I see myself uh, over these next three years, just like working really, really hard. Also, probably finding moments of doubt in myself and finding ways to overcome those because it is going to be a lot. The, the The training is intensive, and I I already have the next album in the works. I'm already. I'm already working on that. So it's just like, it's going to be a lot of balancing, finding my own pace for sure. And where do I sort of see this going? I, I, I really don't know. I think that's like the answer for almost all artists is like, I don't know, but I'm enjoying it right now. And I hope to find more of myself through the training and through me working on my next musical projects and whatever else I put my hands into, whatever other honey pots I decide to, <laughs> to Winnie the Pooh. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I know you've been involved in Black Arts Matter for the last few years as part of the Chinook series. How do you think being a black artist, a young male black artist, influences your artistic practice? And where do you see that going as, a, you know, as an advocate, as an artist, mm-hmm. as a person? Absolutely. Um, this is a good question. It's a really good question. Um, shout out to Nazra Adam, first of all, first and foremost, for creating the Black Arts Matter series mm-hmm. and every other black artist in this city that has helped curate and create more spaces for just people that look like me to be able to to do things i think for for me what it means to be black a black artist in this city is to to just be truly authentically myself i I remember when smile dropped a good friend of mine eric um, i'm really putting you on blast right now eric uh he just graduated high school and he sent me messages like seeing you get into nts seeing you drop this album makes me know that i can do it and I, I remember going through high school and everything, like, improv, I don't see anyone that looks like me on stage. Mm. Going to these other high schools, I don't see anyone that really looks like me on stage either. Like, after graduating, I didn't see anyone that looked like me still. So it's just, like, creating that space to be more welcoming, to see more people that look like me. And I hope, and I think it's sort of already working like that. Um, my brother is doing acting and things like that, which is super, like, incredible for me to see. And it's, like... 
maybe you know i hope some other black kid sees him and it continues there but yeah it's just to create to create more opportunities of representation and be truly authentically myself fantastic that that's an excellent answer <laughs> thank you so much um now you mentioned that you have the next album in the works already can Absolutely. you give us any uh, sneak previews of that <laughs> um <coughs> it's it's gonna be it's gonna be better than smile like i <laughs> okay like i'm already well. it's I'm gonna I'm drop the name I'm gonna drop the name <gasps> of the next album it's called Lollipop Jawbreaker Lollipop it's, Jawbreaker and it's, it's two albums two it's albums a, it's a double disc thing. you're pulling a Drake? uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe cause I can do it better Drake is dead nah I love Drake uh <laughs> but yeah that's the name of the next album and yeah it's already in the works I already got some production on it by like some some of my good friends so like, I'm very excited for that um yeah I'll, I'll keep it at that I'll keep it all right. Well, I'm glad we got that, um, you know, a little peek into the future for Just Mo. Thank you very much. Um, now, I'd also like to ask you, because you've mentioned that, you know, a lot of your friends worked on the album. I know that Good Information Collective um, was a big part of that album from you, um, as well as Floyd. All right. Um, so can you talk about your collaborations with other artists in the city and, you know, building your personal network of friends and um, collaborators? Absolutely. I think there's... Uh... I think there's no end of talent in this city and it's really just like about finding it and utilizing it, especially now. I feel like we're sort of in a golden era in the city, like almost a renaissance, especially like in the hip hop section era. It's like there's so many people dropping incredible tapes. My friend uh, Seth Erskine, Blue Cobina dropped a light shade uh, early 2018. Floyd just dropped Cocoon. And uh, me dropping Smile, Top Boy Lexus dropping Redemption, Nawali dropping Summer Nights, uh, Nazra Adam about to drop her EP, Safira working on material, Hallie Lee working on material. It's just like, the city's bubbling. And there's so many artists that I haven't mentioned. Aiden Murphy, goddamn bless the man, Liar Liar on the Northern Bars Spotify playlist. It's like, the, it's there's endless talent. It's just about like, I think everyone really wants to work together. I think it's just about asking a lot of the time. And a lot of the time we're all really excited yeah also shout out Jalen January new song Killers out uh, <laughs> but uh, it's it's really endless and it's just about asking and keeping your ear out for what you like making sure that you're you're collaborating with people that support your vision and that want to legitimately work with you for the sake of creating not for the sake of like oh you got like this many followers you got this reach here it's like working with people that genuinely care about the process and everything so yeah. bless up <laughs> all right uh now to end us off here um i'd like to ask you like i mean if you had to really boil it down just you know to a couple sentences or so like w what is it that you love about hip-hop about about acting about comedy about all of your artistic practice and and w why do you think it matters in the world okay why does art matter <laughs> <laughs> why does art matter that's big that's really big um why does art matter? I can say why art matters for me. Do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because it's fun. It's really fun. And I I think I learn the most when I'm creating and when I'm having fun creating things. <laughs> it's, it lets me be me. It lets me be me. And I, I find new, new information about myself all the time when I'm creating, especially when I'm working on big projects. So it lets me be me.
Just Mo, thank you so much for joining us here in the CJSR studio for The Gateway Presents. We're going to end us off with energy from Just Mo's new album, Smile. Let's go. It's meant for me, it's written in the prophecy I'm following my destiny Laying out the legacy Making sure my fam get the best of me Making sure my kids get the recipe Sugar and spice, can't forget everything nice There'll be butter, comes bubbling And bless them to their own tunes They gon' have their own rooms They gon' be their own muse They gon' know all the rules They gon' break all them too Lay some up in their max And they'll be freshest, that's fact And if you talking some ish Just know I taught them clapbacks And I'll teach them some tongues Like I hope it could be me just know it's strictly all love And they'll be flat like a dove And I'll smash all the cages And I'll break all the ceilings And I'll make sure Papa stay Give my all every day Give them the best of my tools So when they face with some pain They'll chip away at the clay And make a beautiful sculpture As they pay their own way So when I'm rested away I hope they fall out of memory And they visit the cemetery Oh, I did it for legacy Oh, I did it for you Oh, I gave you my energy But in this case, it's hereditary Oh, Peaches in the summer, know some girlies showing off they peaches in the summer. Got me going off in the sundress. Tell me what I gotta do to impress. So I'm with the gang, hanging with the energy, sipping on that bubble tea, rolling up that tropic tree, sweeter than the pineapple. Might be racing on the express. When I'm with my gang, I just feel so blessed. Feeling I'm my take with motivation. Fuck it, it's so gas station. This is shout out for support and the patience. And damn, have y'all been waiting six years ago? Told my niggas about a mixtape Six years later, damn, I made a fucking mixtape Sailing through the grain line Simple, no, I call it fate Gang serving live energy like from above Gang serving ace, keeping energy safe Gang speaking other bees Shape for my Habibis Never understand how this love fell in my hand Oh, That was our arts and culture section, and that's all our time for this episode of The Gateway Presents. We'll see you again in another two weeks. I'm Victoria Chu, online editor of The Gateway at the University of Alberta, and you're listening to The Gateway Presents. Thank you so much for listening.